0: Turn, if you would, to the book of Matthew. Find the New Testament, and you found the book of Matthew. It is the first book of the New Testament. As I said uh, a couple of weeks ago, the book of Matthew is my favorite book in the Bible. I found my notes of the last time that I taught it, and I started in November of 2003, and 69 lessons later, we finished it. I don't think I'll be that fast this time. (laughs) You never know. We finished off David last week. We had spent 20 lessons, 21 lessons, working through the life of David. He died. Solomon, his son, became king. And that's where we dropped it. It's interesting because we're going to talk about David again today. We're going to talk about David in relationship to the fact that God had promised David that a descendant of David's would sit on the throne forever. Well, if you know your Jewish history, and we'll talk about some of that today, somewhere along the line, there stopped being a throne and there stopped being a Jewish king. But Matthew is going to tell us, That Jesus is that king who will sit on the throne forever. And that's what we're going to talk about as we work our way through the book of Matthew. Like most good introductions, we have to start with the basics. Who wrote it? When did they write it? And why did they write it? Well, we know that Matthew wrote the book of Matthew. Now, you say, how do we know that? Unlike, say, Paul's letters, where he starts in the first verse and says, Paul, writing this to you right now, the book of Matthew in its original form doesn't have Matthew says this. It's just a discussion of the life of Christ. But from the early church, they knew that this was written by the apostle Matthew. So who is this guy? Turn over to chapter 9, and we'll briefly look at this. We'll look at this more in depth later. But it says in chapter 9, verse 9, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. Now, we'll have a long discussion about this whole idea of some stranger walking up to you and saying, follow me, and you dropping whatever it is you're doing and following him. It's a strange phenomena. But this is the first time we actually meet Matthew, and we see that he is sitting in the tax booth. He is sitting there collecting taxes. Now, we also know that Matthew is known by the name of Levi which makes it very, very clear that he is a Jew. So he is a Jew collecting taxes on behalf of the Romans. Nobody liked him. Remember, we're going to talk much, much later, but you're familiar with the story of Zacchaeus. You know, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. You know the song, right? Nobody liked the tax collector. Now you think, well, you know, that, is very similar to today. It's not similar at all. Okay? If you understand the way taxes were collected, you begin to understand why people hated tax collectors. You know, you're sitting in here in Rome, and you go, oh, I need a million dollars from the Judean territory. So somebody comes to you and says, I'll go raise a million dollars for you. And you go, great, go do it. Now, that guy may raise a million and a half. But all he has to pay is a million. So it's very lucrative. So he gets down to Judea and he goes, Okay, you're in charge of that part. You're in charge of that part. You're in charge of that part. You owe me 100000 You owe me 200000 You owe me 300000 Now, you can raise all you can get away with. But you just owe 100000 So at each level... People were making money off of this. So the bottom limit was you had to raise enough to pay the guy above you. The upper limit was you didn't want to raise so much that the people revolted. So between that window, whatever you could get away with was yours. So you would raise the money. You would force the people to give it to you. How could you force them to do it? Well, I mean, you're just a Jew sitting there collecting money, right? Right. Except you had the big burly Roman soldier behind you. And nobody messes with the big burly Roman soldier behind you. So if you tell a guy they owe you a hundred bucks, they'd better pay you a hundred bucks or the big burly Roman soldier is going to take care of you. He was a tax collector. And Jesus walks up to him, which is pretty phenomenal to begin with, and says, you follow me. That's Matthew. That's the author of this book. He is writing the book to a Jewish audience to explain to them who Jesus is. More about that in just a moment. When was it written? It was probably written in about the 60s, which would have been, what, 20 something years after the death of Christ. To me, it's Interesting, some commentators want to say that it was written much later. You do know, right, that there are commentators who want to say all this stuff was just made up, right? But they, they want to say that it was written later. Why? Well, if you go over to chapter 24, it don't go there. <laughs> Jesus prophesies that the temple is going to be destroyed. Well, we look at history and we know what? The temple was destroyed in 70 AD. Well, if you're of a more skeptical mind, you go, well, if Jesus says the temple is going to be destroyed, the book must have been written after the destruction of the temple because there's no way he would have known that. Unless, of course, he is the son of God, in which case he would have known it. So it was written in the mid 60s. Before the destruction of the temple, I believe that's true because if the temple had actually been destroyed, it probably would have been mentioned in the book. So, when was it written? Why was it written? Matthew is one of four Gospels. Quick test. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Y'all are good. The fact that there are four Gospels is both a wonderful thing and sometimes causes problems in some people's minds. Wouldn't it have been better if they had gotten together and written a single story so you wouldn't have this story and this story that look a little bit different? Well, they look a little bit different because each one is coming from a different perspective. It's like I'm watching an event and you're watching an event, and we may get all the facts right, and I do believe, by the way, that they get all the facts right, but the emphasis may be different. I, Matthew, writing to a Jewish audience, want to explain certain things in the context of the Old Testament. Therefore, it's going to repeatedly talk about, and the prophet said, it was written back then, Let's look at this. That's why it starts with this genealogy, this list of long names that I have trouble saying, because he's talking to a Jewish audience, whereas John, he's writing to a Christian audience, and he's got a different perspective totally than Matthew. But there are no contradictions in the scripture. Let's just... Put that out on the table. So why is it written? First verse of the book of Matthew. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He's looking through history and he's picking two characters and he's saying Jesus is a descendant of these two people. It's interesting that it says son. Obviously, Jesus is not the son of Abraham, but he is a descendant of Abraham. Remember that because as we work through this genealogy in just a moment, it is quite possible and quite likely that there are some names left off the list. But these are a descendant, a descendant, a descendant, a descendant. Why does he pick these two people? Well, we know about Abraham God called Abraham, gave him the covenant, said from your seed, all the nations, all the world is going to be blessed. And Paul makes a big deal about that, that he's not talking about his seeds, his group of descendants. He's talking about an individual who is going to bless the entire world, who is a descendant of Abraham, and Matthew is going to show us that person is Jesus Christ. Why David? We just mentioned this a while ago. God promised David that a descendant of yours is going to sit on the throne forever. Matthew is going to show us that Jesus is the fulfillment of both of these promises. It is the promise to Abraham to bless the nations. It is the promise to David that a descendant would sit on his throne. And that's why he is writing this book. We're going to talk about Jesus as the Messiah, the King of the Jews, the King of us. And that's what we're going to talk about. Then we start the genealogies. Are you ready for this? Go on YouTube and Google on Matthew Genealogy Song. Okay? There's a Christian singer who sings a wonderful song going through this genealogy. Much better than I would have done, but I'm not going to sing it. <laughs> Abraham was the father of Isaac. We'll just start right there. Abraham called out of the Ur of the Chaldees. God said, come, I'll show you a land. I'll give you a land. I'm not going to tell you where it is, but when you get there, I'll show you. Abraham was a man of faith. God said, go, and he went. He went. God promised Abraham that his descendants would be greater than the sands of the sea. And Abraham got older and older and older and Sarah, his wife, got more and more advanced in years and there was no descendant. There was no child. So Abraham, like many of us, decided to take things into his own hands. At Sarah's suggestion, they bring in Hagar, the handmaiden. Hagar becomes pregnant, and they have Ishmael. Ishmael, a descendant of Abraham, but not the descendant of the promise. Read the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians uses Ishmael as the example of trying to get salvation by your own works. And Isaac is the son of the promise. So sure enough, Sarah bears a child and his name is Isaac. And if you want to study Middle Eastern history from Abraham to the present, you can sum it up by saying it's the descendants of Ishmael fighting the descendants of Isaac. That's it. Okay, so Isaac has Jacob. We can read it out of the Bible or we can read it off the charts. (laughs) What do we know about Jacob? Jacob was a twin, Jacob and Esau. We're going to test you through all this. We'll see how many of you can name the 12 sons. No, we won't go there. (laughs) Esau was actually the oldest. By birthright, he should have been the heir, the descendant that gets all the stuff. But you remember the story that in his um, hunger one time, he sold his birthright to his brother for a bowl of porridge. Stew. I hope it was really good stew. And Isaac... Jacob deceives his father Isaac and receives the blessing of the father. So Jacob and Esau are at war with each other. Esau says, I'm going to kill him the moment my father dies. So Jacob says, I better leave town because he's big, he's tough. I live among the tents. I'm a wimp. I'm going to leave town. So he goes back to the homeland of Abraham. Now... If you remember in our study of the book of Romans, Jacob and Esau are used to present the example of predestination. And we're certainly not going to talk about that today. Jacob have I loved and Esau I have hated, is what the book of Romans tells us. So, Jacob leaves. He goes back. He marries two women. And each of them brings a handmaiden, so he ends up with four women, and that's a problem. I was discussing with one of my children the other day about the Bible discussing polygamy. The Bible discusses polygamy. It never, ever, ever says it's a good idea. And every, every example in which it occurs, problems happen. So we have Rachel, we have Leah, we have two handmaidens, all bearing children, all mad at each other, and it causes all kinds of problems. And between the two and the two, they have 12 sons and one daughter, and the daughter's name is Dinah. Y'all are good. The 12 sons of Jacob become the 12 tribes of Israel, sort of. Why do I say sort of? If you remember the story of Joseph, Joseph going off to Egypt, Jacob comes down to him. Jacob adopts Joseph's two sons as his sons, which gives you 13, except for the fact that when they get to the promised land, Levi does not get land because he, his tribe are the priest. And so, his tribe doesn't get land, so there's 12 tribes that get land, and Levi gets, well, cities spread around the countryside. But these are the 12 tribes of Israel. One of them is Judah. Now, it's interesting because it next says that Judah has Paris and Zerah by Tamar. Why did he word it that way? Because this is a really bizarre situation. Okay? Judah has three sons. Okay? Uh, what would you say? Gosh, you even know the names of them. You are good. The first one marries a woman named Tamar. And all it says is he did something that ticked God off, and God zapped him. That's a loose translation. (laughs) So, since he had died, Judah tells his second son, you need to go sleep with Tamar to produce an offspring for your brother. Now, this is kind of strange, but if you look at the way it worked, if one of the brothers dies... Another brother goes and gets the ex-brother's wife pregnant. She has a child, and that child takes the place of the deceased brother. Well, the second son says, you know, if this child takes the place of the deceased brother, he's going to get part of the inheritance. If there is no brother, I get more. So he refuses to get her pregnant. And there's a whole discussion there about birth control and all that stuff that we're certainly not going to get into. Suffice it to say, he ticks God off and God zaps him. You see a pattern here. Judas sees a pattern. He has one more son. That son should go spend the night with Tamar. He's a little young, but hey, he'll grow up. But you know, your two previous sons have spent the night with Tamar and look what it got them. So he's reluctant to send his third son to spend the night with Tamar. Well, time passes. Time passes. Time passes. Tamar begins to realize she's not getting a son out of this, a new husband out of this. So Judah comes to visit one day, and Tamar takes off her mourning clothes and puts on the clothes of a prostitute and sleeps with Judah. He doesn't know who she is. she knows who he is. He doesn't have any money, but he leaves his staff as a guarantee for the payment of the money. So the next day, he sends a servant to pay the money. She's not to be found. And he says, ah, I who cares. Several, several months later, it becomes obvious that Tamar is pregnant. And all of a sudden, Judah gets on his righteous high horse. This is my daughter in law. She's sleeping around. Let's start picking up rocks. We're gonna stone this woman. And Tamar sends the staff and says, I'm pregnant by the person who owns this. Caught. And Judah says, You are more righteous than I am. To Tamar. Tamar's descendant is Perez. Perez has Hezron, Hezron, Ram, Ram, Abinadab, Abinadab, Nashon, Salem, Boaz. If you remember when we worked our way through, when we began the life of David, we actually started with the discussion of Ruth and Boaz. Well, yeah. Did I get that wrong? Did I type it wrong? (sighs) And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed. Okay, that's what it is. Ruth was a Moabite. Why is that important? There's all kinds of interesting people in the life, the the genealogy of Jesus. I mean, we have Rahab, who is what? We have Ruth, who is a Moabite, a very virtuous woman, but a Moabite. Then we have Jesse, and then we have David. We actually went through that genealogy when we started the book of, when we started the life of David. (sighs) This part, we actually covered several years ago, when we went through from Solomon to the final collapse of Israel. Solomon was born, I love the way this is worded. (laughs) Who is Solomon's mother? Bathsheba. Bathsheba. We had a long discussion about Bathsheba. But in the the genealogy, she's not listed as Bathsheba. She is mentioned as the wife of Uriah. Think about that for a while. Solomon became king. Remember, we ended up with a discussion of one of the other sons wanted to be king. Solomon was appointed by David. Solomon became king. It is the peak of Jewish history. They had wealth, they had power, they had influence, and Solomon died. And his son, Rehoboam, becomes king. And all the people come to Rehoboam and said, you know, your father built some really big things. And we had to be the slave labor to do it. It would be nice of you, Rehoboam, if you just softened up a bit. You know, give us a little break. Be a little nicer to us. So Rehoboam goes and talks to his experts, his friends. He didn't talk to the wise men. He talked to his friends. And his friends said, oh, no, we can milk this for everything that it's worth. You tell the people you thought Solomon was bad. I'm going to be even tougher on you. And the people rebelled. And the nation of Israel split in two, and we have Israel in the north, and we have Judah in the south. Rehoboam becomes the king of the southern kingdom. Uh, Jeroboam becomes king of the northern kingdom. And for the rest of the history of Israel that's in the Bible, these two are divided. They each have their own list of kings, and if you work through that list those are the kings that follow after David Solomon Rehoboam and their descendants unfortunately unfortunately the people did not do what God wanted them to do and as God had promised he brought them into captivity the nation of Israel was taken into captivity by the Assyrians the Babylonians carried off the Uh, kingdom of Judah. So this is the list from David to the deportation to uh, Babylon. And then we come up with the final list. This is from the deportation to the birth of Jesus. Eventually, eventually the southern kingdom was allowed to return. Now, i Said in a lesson a while back that um, the Babylonians allowed them to do it. And I was corrected. Who did it? The Persians allowed them. The Persians had taken over the Babylonians. They allowed them to return. Okay? So they returned. And we have a list of names here that are probably not very familiar to us. These are the descendants of Joseph. So... Let's actually pick up reading in the chapter. Verse 12. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jehonah was the father of Shatil, and Shatil the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abadid, and then Abed the father of Elikam, and Elikam the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akam, and Akam the father of Elud, and Elud the father of Elazar, and Elazar the father of Matin, and Matin the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph. Now watch the wording in this verse. You ready for this? And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. Notice that it does not say Joseph was the father of Jesus. Joseph, the husband of Mary, who bore Jesus, who is the Christ. Why in the world does Matthew begin his book with all of these names? I was reading one commentary and he said that You know, you give people a copy of the New Testament to read because, you know, they're looking for answers. They don't understand Christianity. And you give them the book of Matthew and they make it halfway through the first chapter and they're done. Well, first off, they're done because they're not Jewish, okay? To a Jew, knowing your father and your father and his father and his father and his father and and dot, 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 Abraham was very important because the Messiah, the king, has to be a descendant of David. That has to be true in order for Jesus to fill the office of Messiah. It has to be true. Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience, and he says, let me get this out of the way. Here's the pedigree. There can't be any discussion about where he came from. The nation of Israel collected, kept very detailed genealogical records to know who came from whom. Jesus is the fulfillment. Jesus fulfills every necessary requirement in order to be the Messiah. Huh. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. What does Christ mean? It is the Greek version of Messiah. What does Messiah mean? Hmm? The anointed one. What is the anointed to do? To sit on the throne. The priest. Well, let's go back to David. We just finished David. We like David. Samuel shows up one day to talk to David's father. David's a child out watching the sheep. And Samuel's got a little vial of oil. And he calls David and he dumps the oil on his head. How messy could that be? But Samuel knew what that meant. David knew what it meant. Jesse knew what it meant. Samuel had just anointed David king of Israel. This is a big deal, particularly given the fact there still was a king of Israel. That was another story. We oftentimes talk about the Lord Jesus Christ as if that's just kind of a name. You know, like Jesus is his first name. Christ is his last name. Lord is his Mr. You know. No. His name is Jesus which is the same as Joshua in the Old Testament. His title is Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is the one that all the prophets have been talking about who would come and deliver the people. From what? We're going to have lots of discussion about that. Because the people want a Messiah, to deliver them from the Romans so they can go back to being top dog like they were when David and Solomon were king. That's what they want. But we're going to see that Christ did not, Jesus did not come to deliver them from the Romans. He came to deliver them from their sin and to provide salvation to them. Next week, we're actually going to do the Christmas story. And it's, what, July. It'll be fun. Jacob, the father of Joseph. No, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. Here's a pop quiz. If Joseph wasn't the father... Who is the Father? Hmm, we should talk about that next week. The reason I bring this up, and it's fascinating to me, and, I mean, it's just an indication of where we are. Years, years ago, I taught a very short, a seven-week class on the life of Christ. For me, that's really hard. (laughs) And I happened to mention in the first lesson that Jesus was the Son of God. I had two people come up afterwards and say, now, you didn't say that Jesus was the Son of God, did you? And I said, yeah, I did. So I started the next lesson with the discussion of the Trinity. Jesus does not, did not, will not, has not, whatever, He did not have a biological father. His father is God. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He is the unique, the one and only God man. And that is what allows him to bring salvation. To us. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, if I'm teaching a... uh, a group of young people, some information, I want to put it in some structure that would be easy for them to remember. Okay? Remember this list of 14, this list of 14, this list of 14. As I mentioned at the beginning, the word son, descendant, doesn't necessarily mean that there's not another person in between. As it says in the first verse, where Jesus is the descendant of Abraham and the descendant of David. It is quite possible and probably likely that there are some names missing from this list. You know, you'd hate to be the person that is so insignificant that you don't get remembered, but that's the state of things. This is the genealogy that takes us from Abraham to Joseph, the husband of Mary. And I might add, when Jesus was an infant, Joseph would have been his legal father. No question. There is another genealogy in the book of Luke that some people get, you know, have trouble with because the names start varying. Well, if you follow that genealogy, that genealogy ends with Mary. So it is not surprising... In fact, it's to be expected that Mary's descendants would be somewhat different than Joseph's descendants. But they both go back to Abraham and they both go back. I mean, they go to the right place. And that's the important thing. So it shouldn't bother us that one genealogy varies from the other. It's just the fact that each of the authors is trying to demonstrate who... Jesus was to a Jewish audience and to maybe not a Jewish audience in the case of Luke. Luke is writing to his Greek friend trying to explain who Jesus was. And in fact, we see the continuation of that story in the book of Acts, which Luke wrote to talk about the early church. Okay? So... 14 generations to make it easy to remember. Now, should we start the next verse? Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Jesus, oh, excuse me, to Joseph, uh, uh. had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child. From the Holy Spirit. There it is right there. Okay? They get engaged. We could have a long discussion about the whole betrothal process. It's probably more encompassing than what we talk about in engagement. But to keep it straight in our minds, we'll say they were engaged. So Joseph and Mary are engaged to be married... And Mary is with child. Hmm. Is there a problem with this? Well, Joseph knows he's not the father. He knows. He knows. I mean, basic biology, right? Mary's pregnant. There's got to be a father somewhere. And it's not me. By the law, by the law, he has the right to bring Mary before the council and say, she's pregnant, I'm not the father, and they could stone her. They could. She could reveal the name of the father or not. They're going to stone her either way. She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. This is the merciful answer. Joseph is a good man. He doesn't want to drag her into public. He doesn't want to make a public scene of it. He doesn't want to have her executed. So he decides we're going to fill out the paperwork. And this betrothal is going to come to an end. Then Mary's family can take her off to the neighboring village. They can have a child. She can come back. Nobody will ever know. You know the way this thing works. That's the good answer. That's the merciful answer. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgins shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Okay. Here you are. You're betrothed. Your wife-to-be is with child. Shock. Bad shock. Devastating shock. But you, thinking about it, wanting to be a nice person, decide, just let her go quietly. I won't make a fuss. She won't make a fuss. No problem. And then you have a dream. Joseph, son of David, take her to be your wife. Because the one that she is carrying is conceived by the Holy Spirit and he's going to save his people from their sins. And then you wake up. You were shocked that she was pregnant. What are you thinking right now? God has spoken to you and told you that your wife-to-be is going to have a child whose father is the Holy Spirit. What do you think about this? What's going through your mind? Not only is she pregnant and you don't know the father, the son is going to be Emmanuel, God with us. In fulfillment of the prophecy. Remember. Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. He is going to continually go back to the Old Testament. And say. As it is written. As the Lord spoke by the prophet. This is the fulfillment. You're Joseph. What are you going to do? Why don't we think about that this week? We have heard this story every December since the day you were born. And we have heard it so often that we begin to think, "Yeah, Joseph's the father, Mary's the mother, God da, da 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 da. We'll get the wise men. All that's going to happen. And sometimes we lose track of what a miraculous, shocking, and to Joseph, terrifying event this is. Let's think about that. And we'll come back next week to talk about Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus to be our Savior. I pray, Lord, that as we work through the book of Matthew, that you would illuminate the scripture so that we can see who Jesus is. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.